Good evening, friends, fellow Dhamma farers. This is an old story as it has come to be told, much as I first heard it. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was staying at Savati in Jetta's Grove. This was a favorite resort of the Buddha, and he often spent the rains period here. Some say as many as 25 of them over the course of his teaching. Nowadays, Savati is no longer there, and few are those who even recall that name. Some scholars, historians, and pilgrims, and those followers of the Buddha who take some interest in this kind of thing. Still, some signs of that once great city remain. The ruins of the old city walls are still there. And within those walls, there are some brick and stone foundations that one can see. But these days, that place is inhabited only by a few monkeys and stray dogs. I know these things, for I have been there. I once spent the rains period in this place, and I have seen the monkeys and the dogs, and I have been a pilgrim there myself. Such is the way of things, that which was once great fades away and is no longer. At the time of the Buddha, Savati was the capital city of the kingdom of Kosala, and it was a great kingdom in that part of India. And the king who ruled there was called Pasenadi, or Pasenadi. And he was a great friend and a disciple of the Buddha. Savati was also the home of a wealthy merchant named Anattapindaka. And he became, over time, perhaps the most famous of the Buddha's lay disciples. And he was the one who purchased that same Jetta's Grove, the Jetavana as it was called, as a gift to the Buddha and his followers. And he built the monastery where the Blessed One was staying in this story. Now in those days, in the month or two before the rains retreat would start, those bhikkhus who were able to would come and assemble wherever the Buddha was residing in order to receive direct instruction in meditation from the master. And then they would return to their monasteries and forest dwellings and hermitages and take up residence for the period of rains as was the custom and the rule. At one time, a group of 500 bhikkhus came to Savati and they went to the Blessed One and bowing down in respect, took their places seated to one side. And then each received instructions in particular techniques of meditation that were suitable to their individual inclinations and temperaments. Such was the skill of the master. Those of a lustful temperament were given contemplation of the 32 parts of the body. Those of a hating temperament were taught the fourfold meditation, which begins with the practice of loving kindness. Those of a deluded temperament were taught the meditation consisting of mindfulness of death. And those inclined to speculative thinking 
we're given the practice mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati. Those of a faithful disposition were given the practice of recollecting, recollecting the qualities of the enlightened ones. And those inclined to investigation, the contemplation of the great four elements. After each had received instructions, this group of 500 bhikkhus went in search of a suitable place to spend the rains retreat, wishing to abide in seclusion and intensive meditation for that period. In the course of their wandering, they came to a beautiful hill just near the base of the great Himalayas. And a small hill appeared before them like a glittering blue quartz crystal. The hill was surrounded by a cool, dense green forest grove. And nearby they found a stretch of ground that had been strewn with sand and resembled a pearl net or a silver sheet. Close by, they also discovered a spring of clean, cool water. These bhikkhus were captivated by the sight of such an ideal place. Nearby, there were a few small villages and also a small market town, which would be ideal as an alms resort. And so the bhikkhus stayed for the night in that idyllic grove. And the following morning, they went into the market town for alms. It's said that the residents there were overjoyed to see these bhikkhus, for rarely did such a community come to that part of the mountains to spend the rains retreat. The devotees in the town fed the monks and asked them, invited them to stay as their guests. They offered to build each one a hut near that forest grove on the sandy stretch so that they could spend their days and nights in meditation under the boughs of the ancient beautiful trees there. The bhikkhus agreed to this and the devotees soon built the little huts there at the edge of the forest and they provided each one with a wooden cot and a stool and pots of water for drinking, washing and bathing. After the bhikkhus had settled down contentedly in these huts, each one selected a tree to meditate under both by day and by night. Now these great trees were inhabited by tree devas, each of whom lived in a kind of celestial mansion that was appropriately built using these great trees as the bases and foundations, as was their custom. And these deities, out of reverence for the meditating bhikkhus, stood respectfully aside along with their families, for the virtue of the bhikkhus was particularly respected by these devas. And when the bhikkhus sat in meditation under the trees, the bhikkhus did not like to remain hovering above them. Thinking that the bhikkhus would just remain for perhaps one or two days, the devas gladly bore this inconvenience. But when day after day passed and the monks kept occupying the bases of the trees, the devas began to wonder when they would go away. They felt like dispossessed villagers whose houses had been commandeered by officials of a visiting royalty or generals of an army. And they kept watching anxiously, talking among themselves, wondering when they would get their houses back. Discussing the situation among themselves, these dispossessed devas decided to frighten the bhikkhus away 
by showing them terrifying visions, by making dreadful sounds, and by creating a sickening stench. Accordingly, they materialized all these terrifying conditions and afflicted the bhikkhus in a systematic way. The bhikkhus grew pale and could no longer concentrate. And as the devas continued to harass them, they lost even their basic mindfulness. Their minds became smothered by the oppressing visions, dreadful sounds, and tragic smells. The bhikkhus, however, did not mention this to one another. Then one day, it was their time to assemble and wait upon the senior elder of the group. And he spoke to them thus, Friends, when you first entered into this wood, the color of your skin was pure and bright, and your faculties were clear. But now you are lean, you are pale. What does not suit you here? One bhikkhu spoke, saying, Venerable sir, at night I saw such dreadful objects, I heard such terrible sounds, and I smelled such awful smells. And so my mind was afflicted and I could not concentrate. And in the same way, each one recounted his own experiences. Then the elder spoke to them saying, let us go brethren to the blessed one and place our problem before him. For I too have been afflicted in just this same way. There are two times for the rains retreat, the early and the late. And though we will be breaking the early one by leaving this place, we can undertake the later one after meeting with the Buddha. The bhikkhus agreed to this plan and they set out at once, not even informing the devotees in the town. Traveling by stages, they arrived at Savati and they went to the blessed one and bowing respectfully sat down to one side. The Buddha spoke to them saying, bhikkhus, a training rule has been made by me and made known by me saying that no one is to go wandering about during the rains period. Why are you wandering? The bhikkhus then related their frightful experiences, requesting that the blessed one help them to find another place. And the Buddha, using his great vision, he scanned the entire area, all of India, but he could not find no place except that very same spot where they could actually practice well and achieve final liberation. He told them, bhikkhus, return to the same spot. It is only by striving there that you you will realize destruction of the inner taints. Fear not. If you want to be free from the harassment caused by the deities, learn this sutta. It will be a theme for meditation for you as well as a formula for protection. Then the master, the blessed one, recited the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the discourse on kindness, which is to be done. And the bhikkhus memorized those verses there in his presence. And they went back to that same place. And as they approached the forest grove, reciting the words of the Metta Sutta and meditating on the underlying meaning of these words, the hearts of the devas became charged with warm feelings of goodwill. The devas materialized in human form and they received these bhikkhus eagerly. They took up their alms bowls, conducted them to the huts and caused water and food.
to be supplied. Then, resuming their normal form, they invited the bhikkhus to occupy the bases of the trees, to dwell there in peace, to meditate without hesitation or fear. They said, stay, stay for the months of the rains retreat, and we'll look after you. And they looked after the bhikkhus in every way, making sure that this place was free of trouble and disturbances. Thus, dwelling peacefully under the care of these forest devas, the bhikkhus applied themselves with diligence and balanced effort. And by the end of the rains, each one of the 500 became fully enlightened, had become an arahant. The good old days. <laughs> Indeed, it is said that such is the power intrinsic in the Metta Sutta, that whoever with firm faith recites these verses, invoking the protection of the devas and meditating on kindness, not only safeguards themselves, but also protects those around and nearby and will make spiritual progress that can actually be verified. These are some words from the Buddha, from another teaching in the Samyutta Nikaya. Therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by metta. We will make it our vehicle, make it our basis, stabilize it, steady and consolidate it, exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus should you train yourselves. I love this image that let us make this metta our vehicle. We will ride on the vehicle of kindness. I recently heard someone uh, give a beautiful, what I think is a beautiful definition of the quality of metta. They said metta is kindness with awareness. And I think it points to a very uh, important aspect of this quality of heart. And thinking about this, I, I said we can think of it in, in two ways, extending from this as awareness within kindness and kindness within awareness. And when we combine these two, the potential becomes very powerful. Here on this retreat now, in the evenings, Many of us are reciting the words of the Metta Sutta. We come together in this tradition of reciting these words. And this is probably, I think, one of the most beloved of the Buddha's teachings, one of the most beloved discourses. Probably it's chanted more than any other. Perhaps the Satipatthana Sutta also recited with that great frequency. Someone once described it as a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly over the centuries. There's a jewel-like quality to this teaching. But there's a lot to the teaching, although it is quite a short discourse compared with some. So I want to take a look at the words there this evening. And I'm not sure how far I'll get. So this might be the first of two talks on this subject. We'll see how it goes. And as I go through this, 
my intention is to chant the words of the sutta in parts. And some of you know it. We'll be chanting it in the English version that we do at night. And please join me when, we, when I do that. We'll be doing a few lines at a time rather than the whole thing at once. And for those who don't know it, the chanting that we do, the English, we do it in Pali and English in the evenings. The um, English translation that we use uh, was done by the uh, Sangha, the nuns and monks at the, uh, of the Thai forest tradition uh, lineage of Ajahn Chah uh, based in the monasteries at Amravati and the other branch monasteries. Uh, it's a good translation, not as literal as some. It was created to be uh, good and easy for chanting. But please join me for those uh, words if you'd like to. I'd also want to, uh, before I begin, uh, acknowledge that um, I had a a really good resource for some of the ideas that I put together for this uh, evening's talk uh, from a series of uh, short uh, writings by a teacher named uh, Andrew Olensky, who teaches sometimes at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies and other places. And he did a, a very extensive analysis of this sutta. Um, it's quite good, a lot of really good stuff in there, where he went through it line by line. We won't be doing uh, quite that, um, won't look at it quite so closely. But it's a great resource if you're interested in studying this uh, teaching in more detail. The sutta uh, has the form uh, almost of a poem. As I said, it's fairly short. And it seems to me it has the feeling of being in kind of three sections. There are kind of three parts to it, and they have different flavors, different feelings to them. There are first uh, some useful reflections just in the first couple of lines. So we'll chant that together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) I think it's interesting here that uh, in this translation, Goodness is referred to, it talks about the skill of goodness, this idea or sense that uh, this might be something to develop as a skill, which might not be how we usually see this. Often we, I think we see things like goodness as a, a quality that we might have or not have, that others have, as something that we might be born with or not. And there's also seems to be a link drawn between this skill of goodness and this and the path of peace. A path of peace, a path that leads to peace. And I think there's a way that this points to the fact that whether or not we experience peace, walk a path of peace, is not a matter of chance, the luck of a draw or something, but actually uh, involves the developing of skills. Skills come through our practice through our own efforts and understanding that comes that way. So we could think of the skill of goodness in different ways. I'll touch on a few possibilities and some that are directly uh, touched on by the next lines in the, in the teaching. 
So a very simple and maybe obvious way is in terms of our conduct, how we live in the world, living carefully, doing our best to uh, live a life of non-harming or to limit the harm that we cause because one cannot live without causing some harm, but without intentionally adding to the suffering in the world through our actions. This is an obvious manifestation of something that we might think of as a kind of goodness, a skill of goodness that we develop through our attention in this way. And, And the relationship to peace in the mind and heart may be fairly easy to see. When we live carefully in this way, develop this kind of goodness, then it leads to a mind more free of remorse, regrets, worries about our actions. And this leads to greater ease, calm, tranquility in the mind and heart, obvious aspects of peace, and also uh, very important supports for our meditation. We could look at the practice of giving, the cultivation of generosity of heart as another skill of goodness. We can cultivate and develop this. And this brings peacefulness in the time of doing it, right in the moment. It also enhances uh, the movement towards peace. The practice of giving has this direct uh, way of countering the the energy of greed, grasping, clinging in the mind. When we practice giving, we practice the skill of letting go. So it has that direct uh, application or relationship to peace, to letting go. This path that we're practicing here is spoken about in different ways. But one way is in terms of what are called the three trainings in uh, dana, sila, and bhavana, in generosity, giving, ethical conduct. And bhavana uh, means mind development, mental cultivation. This is the meditation practices that we learn. And it's said that the Buddha taught this way, uh, especially so for lay people. Dana and Sila are not emphasized in the same way, perhaps so much in, as the teachings have come to the West. We tend to kind of reverse the order a little bit, or at least we, we, go, we want to go right to the bhavana part place more emphasis on that. We don't see Donna and Sila as practices in quite the same way, although we may take them on in a certain sense. But often we see them as preliminary kinds of things. We chant the precepts at the beginning of a retreat or once in a while during the retreat, perhaps. We have a sense that giving is a good thing to do. We practice that. But maybe we don't hold them in quite the same way see them as a foundation or an aid to our meditation, but that the meditation is the real thing. I think this is actually a a limiting kind of view. It doesn't uh, touch the the potential there, which is quite large, quite vast, I think. And in my experience, our understanding, my own understanding, I'll say, of the uh, potential and the power of Donna and Sila my respect and appreciation for these practices has only grown over time. And my feeling of the way that the, the, our understanding is refined 
every step of the way as we walk this path. This seems very clear to me. It's woven into the very uh, fabric of the practice. One time I was uh, going to be giving a talk and I wanted to speak a bit on this subject and I I was teaching a long retreat uh, in California along with Carol Wilson who was one of the teachers for the first half of the retreat here. And um, she agreed to let me interview her. She was reclining on the floor at the time. So these are some words from Carol from the reclining posture. (laughs) Donna and Sila are not in any way merely preliminary practices. They are a way of living one's life, of purifying the mind stream. The more I practice, the more I see the subtlety of the way they inform my life. They are intrinsic to awakening. If one were just to practice Donna and Sila with the intention to really watch the mind and heart, one would discover that they are in and of themselves liberation practices. It's all about purification. The pure mind sees Nibbana. Very good quotation, huh? So implicit in this is the sense that we, we start looking for, our, for ourselves. We bring this intention to watch the mind and heart, to learn there. So the next lines of the sutta address directly uh, different things that we could look at in terms of the, this skill of goodness, different attitudes that we could say reflect goodness and also... Um, point to the life of, of those that the Buddha was teaching at that time, mostly the, uh, those who had taken up uh, the renunciate life of alms mendicants, who were living as, we would say, nuns and monks. Not alms mendicants is the, really what, what nun, nuns and monks, well, we use it shorthand, not quite right those who, who live that life dependent on daily offerings for their basic uh, support. And this life of simplicity that uh, they would undertake, that those who live in that way, follow that tradition, undertake today. So I'll <clears throat> chant the next few lines. We'll go through, those who are joining me, <laughs> we'll go through the line. Uh, we'll start with let them be able and upright and we'll go Uh, through the wise would later reprove. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. There's something for all of us, even those of us who do not live this uh, life in robes, 
this more intentionally renunciate way of living. But this encouragement towards uh, greater simplicity, towards care, bringing mindfulness awareness to how we are living in the world. We could look at this in all kinds of ways. We could think of, of it in, in the way we use the things that are there for us in the world, the way we use resources, for example. Looking at how we, how we use these things. Asking and checking to see how much do we really need. There's often so much confusion between our wants and our needs. And as a species, we're kind of voracious, we humans. We want all the best stuff. We don't leave a lot left over for other beings some of the time. Our economic systems are based on continual growth as if that could ever be sustainable. And we foul the air and water and turn the landscape into a desert a lot of the time. We wouldn't tolerate this kind of behavior on the part of another kind of being. You know, if squirrels are chickadees, we're doing what we're doing, we'd rub them out. Terrible pest. And I don't say this to make any of us feel badly, but really to point to ways that we can uh, bring attention to how we're living. Because how often do we ask ourselves, what do I really need right now? to feel happy, to feel sufficient, to feel complete. You know, it's so easy to see in terms of lack, to see what's missing. And there's a lot of uh, cultural persuasion to look in this way. The whole world of advertising is based on pointing out to us what we lack, what we don't have. But if we look, maybe we might see, well, maybe I don't need so much. That a simple life brings its own kind of blessing, its own kind of happiness. In in an earlier talk, I spoke about uh, a bit about the quality of contentment, this idea of finding contentment, what contentment might actually be. This is something really worth looking at because I think we often see contentment as something we might reach for, we might possibly attain but we see it often as having our desires in the moment met. We'll be content when our desires, what we want right now, we get that. And so we have to keep arranging and then rearranging the circumstances in the world around us. So we have certain conditions that get met. I'll be content once I've managed to get the right job and earn enough money. I'll be content when I meet the right person, when I achieve a a certain set of goals, whatever they might be. And so then contentment, it seems like it's, it's around the corner somewhere. We never quite get to it. Or maybe if we do get to it, it doesn't seem to last very long. Maybe the conditions change. This This way of looking at things can lead to what uh, Joseph Goldstein calls if only mind. If only I had whatever it is, this thing, that thing. 
then I'd be okay, then I'd be happy. The Buddha is, is uh, suggesting kind of a, a really different way of looking at things. That contentment might be found through uh, adapting and changing the way we look at things by adapting what we want to the conditions that are there. Becomes an attitude that we can discover a mental emotional state that we might be able to find in almost any situation. So we can practice this as a real exercise by asking that question I suggested a little bit ago. What would it take for me to be content? Or can I be content now with this, with things as they are? What could I let go of? Preferences, desires, wishes. What attachments could be released here and now so that contentment might arise? It doesn't mean that we have to leave the world contentment. It doesn't mean we have to disengage entirely from any worldly pleasures. We can, we do enjoy these pleasures, but we know them for what they are. This attitude doesn't mean that we would in any way um, acquiesce to harm or injustice in the world. But if we take it on as a practice, we might find that contentment is possible more often than we think, maybe at times when we would least expect it. The next section of this teaching of the sutta can be seen as an actual meditation. And the words in the the name, the karaniya metta sutta, this word, as I said, karaniya means uh, a thing that is to be done. The discourse on loving kindness to be done. And so the, the sutta and the reciting of the words, I, I see it as an actual practice, a practice of metta. I've, I certainly found that it has become this for me over time. There's something powerful in voicing words like this, I think bringing this intention to mind, giving voice in this way. And, and this tradition, at least in the monastic side of it, is very much a, a tradition of chanting. And uh, different things are, are chanted in, some, in, the, in this tradition, the Thai forest tradition, where I got this uh, translation. Uh, there are, are chants, reflections that are done every day. For example, a chant on uh, reflecting on uh, the five aggregates subject to clinging. One gives voice to this uh, understanding that these um, are impermanent, that they are not, uh, not things that we, uh, cl- that clinging to these does not lead to happiness, but rather to suffering. So there's something I think that has, for me at least, I've noticed some practical value in just the giving voice uh, to these kinds of words, to actually doing the chant, that it becomes a practice, that it shifts energetically the mind, the body, the heart. This is a possibility at least. So we'll do uh, the next part.
Um, <clears throat> Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be at ease. There's a sense here, I feel that um, the teachings are telling us that we can practice really pretty much any time in almost any situation, whatever circumstances we might find ourselves to be in. And we can direct this quality, quality of kindness, of friendliness to anything, anyone. Because in a sense, the object is of less importance than the quality of the mind and the heart. It's the way that we are regarding the object. That's what's important. That's what's we're interested in there. Yes, our wish if we're practicing for another being, it's sincere, it's real, it's true. But the purification, the process is an internal one within one's own mind and heart. When we send metta, we send true and real wishes, but um, it's not a magic. And although healing and protection may occur, the real healing and protection is an internal one for us in developing this quality of mind and heart. And it happens through, uh, in part through the process of releasing unwholesome thoughts. There's not room for them in there when metta is strong. And they, they can't invade the mind and heart and trouble us. And we also develop wholesome, beautiful mind states. So we release the unwholesome, we gain the wholesome. It might be interesting to practice metta in what seems like kind of non-traditional ways. You know, maybe to what we usually think of as, as inanimate objects or other things. In uh, when I was reading the uh, some of the uh, analysis that Andrei, Andy Olensky um, wrote about. He said, um, he suggested maybe practicing metta for things like clouds. He used this phrase, may these clouds in the sky be secure and profoundly well. <laughs> I don't usually think of offering metta to clouds. And it's not that we're trying to get that particular cloud to stay there. <laughs> keep its form. Clouds are not, that's not their nature. Constantly changing. But about this quality of friendliness and care, we can develop it in all kinds of ways at different times. Not just when we're either in the presence of someone we care about or when we're bringing someone we 
care about to mind into our heart. Maybe we could practice metta for troubling thoughts or difficult mind states, pains in the body. May this aversion be happy and safe. May the pain in my back be profoundly well. It'd be interesting to try. This, this section that we just recited also points to the, uh, this inclusive, unconditional and inclusive quality that we develop and aim for when we practice metta and the other Brahma Viharas as well. You know, it goes to great lengths to make sure that all kinds of beings get in there without any exception. So visible ones, invisible ones too, all sizes and shapes. I want to make sure we get the medium ones in there. You're all kind of medium sized. We, we of the medium kind, the middling beings, may we be happy. But little ones and big ones, long ones. One translation, it refers to bulky ones. Don't want to leave the bulky ones out, nor the lean. This essence of metta, this quality where all are included, this pure benevolence, wishes well to all, simple generosity of heart, of spirit. It doesn't ask for anything in return. There's not a seeking of self-benefit in this. And, and this quality of mind has this potential to really become that broad and vast, that that unconditional and that vast to hold all beings. Doesn't demand that others be a certain way. In this teaching, this understanding, the criteria for being worthy of love is being a living being. And right now somewhere, probably many places in the world, someone is offering metta to all beings. Can you let that in? Do you know why you're worthy of receiving it? Because you're a living being. So we're all pre-qualified. That's the, the criteria for worth there. In one teaching, the Buddha said, you could, any one of us could search over the entire universe in every possible plane of existence and we would never find another being more worthy of love than we are, each of us ourselves. So we'll do uh, a little bit more chanting and then I think I'll, I'll stop. For, I won't get through the whole sutta tonight. So the next few verses, uh, there's a, a little bit of a shift, I feel, in the, in the tone of things. Um, less emphasis on the direct practice and more uh, some comments on some of the attitudes of mind and heart that are important that arise and that one attends to when practicing this, uh, developing this quality. So we'll uh, do some, a little more chanting now. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. 
Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I'll say a little bit about just the first part of this. See if I can find a place to end this evening. No matter what our choice of lifestyle, even those who have chosen to live a more renunciate uh, and more austere uh, lifestyle, we all live in the world to some extent and uh, none of us is entirely independent and we have to act at times and we act a lot. Even refraining from acting is a kind of action you could say. and the first two lines of this section really um, really ask us to look at the motivations that inform our actions, really bring our attention to this. Because actions do not happen just by themselves. All actions have their genesis in the mind. The mind is the forerunner of these things. And so we look to see what is the quality of mind, of heart that gives rise to our actions? What are they born of? Are they born of uh, the intention to deceive another? It says, uh, let none deceive another. Are they born out of this uh, motivation to deceive another just to gratify our desires or for some kind of personal gain? Do we act out of jealousy or envy, resentment? Do we work to undermine someone because we don't like them? Wish harm upon someone out of resentment or spite? There's the understanding that that, um, different patterns of reactivity born of conditioned habits of mind, of heart, they can arise in the mind the deeply rooted mental habits that we look at so much over the course of the day, these are there, they arise. And sometimes they do give rise to our actions and those actions uh, may cause harm to ourselves, to others. But with mindful awareness, with uh, awareness with kindness and kindness with awareness, we have the chance to uh, look at these, look at the mind and heart Look what's happening there. We can see that maybe our first response isn't the most noble. 
isn't the wisest, kindest response. This is where this uh, metta as kindness with awareness really comes into play. With a a quality of kind-hearted awareness, we can bring in a broader view, really look at what's happening in the moment. Look at the underlying motivations at the mental energies that are giving rise to actions we might take. And we can choose whether or not we want to follow these energies. Like what do we want driving the car, the bus? We see what happens. When aversion drives, it goes this way, off to the that side. When greed, grasping, desire, drive, it goes the other way. When wisdom, kindness, compassion drive, it goes a different way. It's not personal. This kindness with awareness opens the door also to compassion. Because even someone who seems to be only causing suffering in the world, we see that they can receive and be worthy of our compassion because we see that their personality, their actions, have their roots in, in their conditioning. And that these have shaped them. That they're not seeing these motivations. They don't have the ability to see that. There's a saying I uh, heard, read, it's the go, that says, hurt people, hurt people. A hurtful person has learned to be hurtful by being raised in a hurtful environment. They commit harmful actions because their natural sense of respect and conscience is overwhelmed by confusion, ignorance, and suffering. And in the cases of some people, the the confusion and suffering in the heart is beyond anything any of us have probably ever experienced. And so their actions cause harm. But underneath, there's a person who wishes to be happy just like any one of us. They just don't have any idea what might actually lead to that. And there's no reason or why they should know. Perhaps they've never experienced kindness. And this doesn't mean that harmful actions are to be forgiven. In no way does it imply that. Some acts are not and never will be forgivable. But with kind-hearted awareness, we can take a broader view of things and we don't have to uh, decide that someone is evil. We see the conditioned nature of things. And so we see that uh, for compassion and forgiveness are possible. Because we, can conf- we may be able to forgive a confused and suffering being because we see those same seeds in our own heart. We know what it is to act from these energies. And when there's no awareness, they can have the upper hand. They do. There's another saying, perhaps I'll end uh, somewhere soon with this. Another saying that healed people heal people. This perspective uh, comes when we practice this quality of kindness with awareness, awareness with kindness. And it points to the possibility that healing can and does occur, that healing is possible for us, for others. 
And from this perspective, there is never a reason to throw anyone out of our heart. No reason to despise any being in any state, as it says in the teaching. So we don't condone harmful actions. We don't forgive what is unforgivable. We draw clear boundaries. We address injustice. We act in the world when action is possible and uh, makes sense. But we don't have to throw anyone out of our heart. So I think I'll, I'll stop here this evening and uh, continue with uh, looking at the words of this sutta uh, next week, next time I give a talk. Mm, There's some more good stuff. So we'll sit quietly for a few moments, but um, before we do that, um, an invitation to come for the chanting. We'll recite the words of the Metta Sutta in Pali first, which is quite beautiful. And then again in the English that we we did, we won't break it up like we just did. And uh, and probably get the devas to come and join us for that. And the new rule, as uh, hopefully you've all heard, is that you can leave right after we finish chanting. So um, yeah, please be welcome if you have been coming, and please be welcome if you haven't. Um, And please be welcome to call it a day if you're ready to do that. So we'll sit quietly and let these words drift away and then I'll ring the bell in just a moment. 